Welcome back, everybody. It's great to be back for this uh, part three of our study of Ruth. Today, Lord willing, we'll be going through the entirety of the second chapter. So, review a little bit where where we were, right? We We got introduced to a man and his wife Pleasant, Naomi, and how they fled from this famine. They came upon the land of Israel, the consequences there. We talked about the foolishness generally of trying to seek safety apart from God's people. We talked about their repentance of God's people and how that is signaled in the return of food to the land of Israel. And Naomi and Ruth go back, talked about all of that, the importance of clinging to God and to his people, and then where we kind of left off was the dire situation that Ruth and Naomi find themselves in because, of course, they didn't know how the story ended. We do, and so it's easy for us to be like, well, yeah, of course, right? You go join the people of God and happily ever after. But they were actually looking at no security, starvation, molestation, and death, right? So with that bleak picture in mind, mind orienting us to where where we are in the narrative. Um, I'm going to read the second chapter for context, and then we'll pray and we'll dig into this and start breaking it down verse by verse and seeing all of the riches that are in the second chapter of the book of Ruth. So note this is the ESV with a few, few minor translation quibbles added by myself. All right, this is the second chapter of Ruth. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the fields of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now. Her her resting in the house has only been for a moment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done, 
and a full reward be given, by, given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you should go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you would teach us from your word today, from the example of these two saints, that you would give us clarity of understanding that you would keep me from error and that you would reveal yourself in your word to your people. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Ruth chapter 2 begins with a bit of foreshadowing. It could have started with verse 2. could have started with Ruth saying, please go let me glean, but it doesn't. It sets it up for us telling us about this guy that we're going to meet a few verses later. And the reason for that, it's one of those glorious things that you get with that omniscient narrator um, that you see in Scripture, is God is pulling back, pulling back the curtain and showing us what he's doing. And there's something something glorious to, to see here, because we know what Ruth and Naomi need. They need, they need this provision. And in the very first verse with this foreshadowing, God is setting that up. And he's setting that up in the form of this, the, the, the term you hear is the ish gebor ha'il, right? This, it's, and it's quite, quite something. It's not just like a, a wealthy man. It's a man of great power, right? Great strength. So this guy... The words that are used to, de- to denote strength and ha'il can mean anything from army to wealth, right? So this, you get this idea of this guy 
has a lot going on. As we see, he has a, he has a great number, great amount of possessions, employees, and so forth. That's what they need, right? They need, they need a Gabor Hiel. And right in the first verse, before they know anything about it, God is already preparing this man. And we're going to get to get, we're going to spend some more time with with Boaz later. But seeing God's provision before it comes is an important thing to be aware of here. So then, in verse two, we'll move on to verse two. And what do you see here? You see Ruth taking initiative, right? And there's she. She finds herself in this desperate situation, and she has something that she can do about that. She goes out and she gleans. And we'll study gleaning in a little bit, but <clears throat> gleaning is the, was the right of the poor. And Ruth does what her hand finds to do, right? The, uh, there is a malady that often afflicts us in this modern day where we have the, the curse of choice and opportunity, where it's easy to just bemoan our circumstances or bemoan the way the world is and not just do what our hand finds to do. You find that, that phrase in scripture a few times, you know, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. God has always set something. He's always prepared some good work before us. And it's easy to wait to be passive. Trusting God, having faith in God, and passivity are not the same thing. There's this idea of like, just, you see that kind of like, you don't have to do anything just sit there, right? And we'll, we'll, we'll explore that in a little bit. But that's the first thing you notice about Ruth is the way she takes initiative. There's a thing right in front of her, and she, she goes out and gets it aggressively. It's a powerful example there for us to follow. You know, if you're, there's, always, there's always a next a thing that you can do that's right in front of you. So choosing, choosing that default option and pursuing it aggressively. The next thing you can see is the nobility of work, right? Kind of developing this, this theme here is how often God involves us in what he's doing, even in our own deliverance. There's a few cases, there's a few exceptions where that's not the case, but those are always called out as exceptional. The two that come to mind are the Egyptians, right at the Red Sea with Moses and the people of Israel, and God comes and he says, just stand firm and watch the salvation that I bring. The other one is with Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah against the Moabites, Ammonites, and the Edomites, right? They've got this huge coalition coming against them. And he's, same thing, same language. I'm going just sit still. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to fight this whole battle. But what is remarkable about both of those instances is that they're up against overwhelming odds. They don't have anything. They don't have an option in either of those cases. God reveals himself in that way in circumstances 
where there's absolutely nothing that we can do. Which, kind of sidebar, you think about our justification. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves, right? We're, we're dead in our, our transgressions, right? There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right before God, and he provides that, and there's, there's nothing that we can bring to that. Well, they say that the only thing that you bring to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But that's the exceptional case. It's easy for people who are focused on the absolute truth of justification by faith alone and the idea of the monergistic work of God in our own salvation to apply that everywhere else. This is where you end up with a kind of a passive antinomian Christianity because though the scripture makes it very clear that in these situations where it's hopeless, we simply stand by and watch God save us, the rest of scripture, mercifully, is full of do this, don't do that, get busy with this, be faithful in this regard. God's word, his commandments to us, the example that he has laid out is full of us working. And that's not for our, that's not for what he needs. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God owns everything he created, everything is all powerful. He involves us for our benefit. So you see Ruth taking initiative, going to work. And then there's this expression, beautiful uh, idiomatic, in whose eyes I find favor. You find this all over the Old Testament. And it's, a, it's just a fun one to pause and, and think about because you'll see it everywhere. Once, once you take note of it, you'll start to see it all over the place. It's always the same Hebrew. We'll often translate it in whose sight I find favor or something to try to make it a little less awkward in English. But the idea is you're finding favor in someone's eyes. Right? It's an interesting thing to think about. You know, we've got the expression, the eyes are the window to the soul. You ever heard that expression? You ever talk to somebody and you can tell just by looking at their eyes whether or not you know, they like you or they're going to do what it is you're asking them to do. So it's an interesting thing to ponder. That's what she's out looking for. She's seeking favor in someone's eyes. And there's, a, there's an interesting parallel here to the way we are commanded to seek God's favor. You see that in, uh, in Psalm 27. He says, God says, seek my face. The psalmist responds, your face, Yahweh, do I seek? We're responding to that exhortation to seek God's face. And in 2 Chronicles, same thing, if my people will humble themselves and repent of their wicked ways and seek my face, the way you find favor with God is by turning from wickedness and becoming like him listening to his word and emulating who he is, his nature. So Ruth 
is going out seeking favor. We'll come back to that later. We'll see that again. And the last one that we see, this verse 2 has a lot in it, is the way Ruth interacts with Naomi. It's clear from the context that Naomi is likely too old to work at this point. Working out in the field is very strenuous. So Ruth is the one who's taking this initiative. She's taking on, she's being brave. She's taking a huge risk. She's asking to go do something that's going to be very strenuous and put her in a compromised position. She's having to show a lot of faith. She's showing knowledge of the fact that gleaning was the thing that was appointed to the poor in Israel. So she's, and yet she's going to Naomi as the head of the household, this old woman who doesn't have the strength herself to go out and gather and saying, please allow me to do this. That's fascinating. I mean, that's a, uh, kids, this is the goal. You want to get to the point where you listen to this example and you're coming up and saying, Father, may I please mow the lawn? (laughs) Mother, if I have found favor in your sight, would you allow me to clean up the kitchen? (laughs) Serious. Ruth is the strong one here. She's the one who's able And she asks for permission to go do this thing. Powerful, the way she's oriented towards her mother-in-law and focused on work and taking initiative. Be Be like her. May we be like her. Now we get to verse three, right? She shows up, starts gleaning, and now we're told... Where did she happen to be? It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful, uh, the, the language is something more along the lines of, and her happening happened upon, it's the same word, her happening happened upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Like, huh, wouldn't you know it? It's the, same, it's the same word repeated in two different forms. It kind of refers to a chance encounter. Making it very clear. Some people are like, well, you know, Ruth was, she knew about Boaz. She was out there angling. This was all a setup from the get-go. The text makes it explicit. That was not the case. She didn't know who this guy was. She didn't plan this. God made this happen. Which, you know, should make us think of Romans 28. Right? God works all things together for good. Or Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good for those who love him. Marveling at the way God ties loose ends together. Like that, that is one of our God's signature moves. <laughs> is the mystery and the majesty of that verse that he has appointed all of these things. I mean, you see novelists do this, and you really, you marvel, right? And they're like, oh, wow, like, they created all of those plot lines. They created, like, five different plot lines and all brought them together and made all the characters, you know, all at the right time. And that's in the simple, you know, the simple 
pages of a book, something that somebody could kind of fit in their head. And we wonder at, at the skill and artistry in that. But it's, it's worth stopping and thinking about who God is and how he's able to orchestrate all of history so that everything fulfills his purpose for those who love him. Because here's Ruth, here's what she needs. Where does she happen to go? Boaz's field. Uh, Matthew 6, 7 through 8, our Lord says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Just like our work is for us and not for God, our prayer God is delighted when we pray to him. He delights in that. He commands us to do it. But prayer is not for him. He's not up there going, oh man, I wish they would just tell me. Obviously, I'm speaking in very, you know, anthropomorphic terms. He's not up there wondering what we need and wishing people would like send him a a Santa Claus list, right? He knows what we need before we ask him. Prayer is for our benefit, orienting ourselves rightly before God. And as a side note, it's interesting. I don't know if you ever see these studies where people try to scientifically study prayer. And, you know, they have like a control group of people that don't pray and these other people that pray for a thing. And then they look at the results and they, see, prayer doesn't work. We studied it. Jesus expressly addresses that here. God is not a vending machine. Your father knows what you need. He has already decided what is best and how he is telling the story. You don't manipulate. Prayer is not something we do to manipulate God. It's something that is for our benefit, as with all the things that God has ordained for those who love him. All right. So the first three verses, we looked at what God's doing in the setup, and we looked at Ruth. Now enter Boaz. It's great. It's behold, like, like, well, wouldn't you know it? The man himself, Boaz, coming from Bethlehem, coming from the city, probably the city gates, because as we'll see later, He's one, of the, he's one of the elders. He's got a seat there. We won't get to that until next time or the time after. Boaz probably means in him is strength. One of the pillars of the temple was named Boaz. Certainly related to this, the Hebrew word for strength. Contrast that with Ruth's former husband whose name was sickly so it's an upgrade from sickly to in him is strength she's things are looking up and then one of the first things that we learn about boaz is this greeting that he has right he he comes up to him and he says you know yahweh may yahweh be with you right so we 
So he's a, he's a godly man, godly boss, right? That's the first thing he does, gives them a, a, a greeting in, in the name of Yahweh. And then they greet him back. So he's a good boss. And they're like, right? He greets them, they greet him back. May Yahweh bless you. And then we see some more about Boaz. The first thing he does is he goes and says, all right, what's the tally? You know, how many bushels, of, you know, how many ephahs of barley are we bringing in? You know, like, how's it going? First thing he, he notices is, she's new. Who's that? All right? So you see something about Boaz. He knows his people. He cares about his people. Because the first thing is, Who's that? Right? And he goes, calls up his supervisor. Who's she? And uh, this is, there's some conjecture here because this is, verse 7 is one of those verses that kind of gives Hebrew translators fits because there's a word in, there's oh, some structure in it that doesn't quite make sense. I'm of the opinion there's a commentator who, who, thinks that the reason for the awkward Hebrew is it's a literary device indicating that the supervisor is stuttering. Right? Because if, if they've got a hut, if they've got some kind of a shade, they're on the field, there's no house here, right? But if they've got some kind of a shade and Boaz comes up to that, right, with the supervisor's there and Ruth is there, there's a Moabite in the resting hut, and he's asking the supervisor, who are the Moabites, right? Supervisor's got some answering to do. So he explains really quickly, here's the situation. She came, she asked nicely, she's been working hard. She hasn't been here very long. Honest boss, like no funny business. No funny business with the Moabitess. Which tells you something else about Boaz. Assuming that interpretation is correct... And we'll see in other ways that that this is something that's very important to Boaz. So it's entirely consistent with his character is he doesn't tolerate any of the debauchery of his day. This is, remember, this is the time of the judges. There's no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So theoretically, any barley harvester does what is right in his own eyes, but not in Boaz's field. He runs a taut ship. He knows his people. He cares for his people. And he maintains this, you know, this gravitas that is providing spiritual, economic, and physical safety under his roof. There's something to learn there of if you're a godly authority, whether you're a any authority, right, at any level, to emulate Boaz's example. He does not make that somebody else's problem. You're in my field. You're one of my harvesters. This is how we do things here. The myth of secularism would not fly with Boaz. This is not about barley to him. This is comprehensive. 
So now we're gonna have a little bit of a sidebar and talk about the contacts. Where are they, right? So I, I mentioned they're out in the field. So this is in Palestine. This is likely, this is around the time of Passover. Passover is associated with the barley harvest. So this is gonna be in the spring. And the way they would do it is that the grain, the grain would grow up. They didn't have combines, right? So they would have, I got, got a prop here. This is a really small one, right? It's a sickle. They didn't have combines. They didn't have anything fancy. And so they would have all the men out in the field, and you'd grab, you'd grab some grain with one hand, a handful of it, and you'd cut it. You had this knife, like a sword, and you'd cut it, and then you'd throw it in a pile, and you'd do that, and you'd keep going along. I'm not good with a sickle, so I'm going to put this away before I cut myself. But if you want to see it afterwards, it's up here. So they would put it all in a pile, and then the women would come along, the bundlers would come along afterwards, and they would tie those piles up into bundles. And then they would take it off to thresh it. We'll see threshing next time. The threshing was when they'd put it down and they'd either beat it, or if you had more grain, you'd actually run a sled. You'd have oxen pull a sled over the top of all your grain, right? Because you've got these stalks with the grain on the end and you need to separate the grain part out from the stalk. So you run that over it or you beat it and then they would throw it up in the air on a windy day or a windy night, and they would let the wind blow away all the chaff, and what you'd have left over is your grain. This is really hard work. If you've ever had to use a sickle and go out, you spend all day, right, chopping, hacking away at this stuff. It is backbreaking work, and it was an all-hands effort, which is why you see Boaz's men are out there reaping, and the women are doing the bundling. And the gleaning was the thing, basically anything, they weren't supposed to cut the edges, and they were supposed to leave anything that fell on the ground for the poor to pick up. So it was, that was what was going on there. So this is what Ruth is going out and becoming a part of. And it's, you know, we, we get really pretty cushy, but... It's important to note, like, this was what they were all engaged in. You know, Boaz's whole household is, is out there cutting this grain, bundling it up. And that is backbreaking work. So, you know, feminine strength is something that sometimes we don't talk about a lot. But there's nothing wrong with feminine strength. Men... Men and women complete each other. They don't compete with one another, right? But you see that here of you're out here all day in the hot sun, bundling this stuff up, carrying it. We'll see Ruth later carrying her, what, what she collects. But weakness in women is not anything that, uh, physical weakness in women is not anything that Scripture condones. I happen to know, I'm blessed to know a number of young women that spend a lot of time carrying around sacks of grain and pushing animals around, and that is entirely appropriate. 
So now we've got this context of where we are in the field, how much work this is, right? The time, this is a time also of, it's not only a lot of work, but this is, you know, this is a good, this is a good time because we, we live in a day and age where food is everywhere. It's important to orient ourselves into a time of subsistence living where it's like we, we like to watch the show alone as a family, right? And the whole thing there is, you know, you have enough food or you're going to have to tap out. This is alone without the sat phone. <laughs> you don't get enough calories, right? They're doing the same math. They don't, maybe don't know that it's called calories, but they got a good sense of if I don't eat, I'm not going to survive. We have to eat to survive. And the harvest time is when you're bringing in the food that you're going to be able to store, that you're going to be able to hide, you're going to be able to protect it from raiders, protect it from locusts, right? all these different things that could come in and destroy your ability to survive. And into that, you see Boaz's generosity, right? It says, stay here, stay close. Interesting, he says, cling to my young women. Harkens back to Ruth says to Naomi, or, or it is described that Ruth clung to Naomi, so she clings to the people of God. And now Boaz is expanding that, and he says, cling to the women of my household. He's bringing her into his household and providing her the safety and provision. He's treating her like one of his servants, even though he's not getting anything out of it by telling her you can have water stay with my young women he's bringing her into his household even though he he gets nothing from it he's really in in a, in a real sense he is representing Yahweh to Ruth and Ruth sees that because her response is she falls down, the, the gesture is like you fall down on your knees and you touch your forehead to the ground. She recognizes the generosity and that Boaz is representing Yahweh to her. It's a, it's a gesture you normally see for like royalty or deity. And Ruth says, why me? I'm a foreigner. And Boaz has the, uh, the same attitude as our Lord. He says in Matthew 19, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So right here in verse 11, in verse 12, Boaz says why. It's not random. He came from the city gates. He got the report. He heard what Ruth had done and how she had left her father and mother and thrown herself upon the people of God. And now he is being, being Yahweh to her. And he pronounces this blessing. So before we get to that, it's interesting to note, he says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Well, note that that reference to wings, because that will come up next time as well. Beautiful the way everything ties in in this, this book. 
But Boaz knows something about people coming to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Because who was Boaz's mother? Also someone who was an enemy of Israel. Remember, the Moabites are the enemies. Also a woman who had some reputational challenges. Also someone who threw herself on the people of God. Boaz's mother was Rahab of Jericho. So he knows all about how this goes. And so he pronounces this beautiful blessing on Ruth. May may Yahweh bless you for what you have done. And then Ruth says, I found, what did she go out? She said, at the very beginning, she said to Naomi, let me go glean in the field of in whose eyes I find favor. She found it. Yahweh brought her providentially to this field, to this man, and she found exactly what she was looking for. And she recognizes that that in Boaz, she's found favor and that he is bringing her into his household. So then his generosity continues. Lunchtime calls her over to share a meal. The, the, again, right? He's, this is limited food, right? He's brought food for his workers who were bringing in grain for his household. So he's got bread, he's got vinegar, he's got some parched grain, and he brings over somebody who's not doing anything for him and invites her to share the meal as though she was part of his staff. Unprecedented unprecedented generosity. Um, It's just one minor. If you've got the ESV and it says, dip your morsel in the wine, the word there is for sour wine. I'm guessing that the ESV, the ESV is the only English translation, the ESV and the RSV are the only English translations that render that word that way. My guess is that they're, they're, trying to, they're seeing a parallel with bread and wine to meals shared with the people of God. And that's probably not inappropriate, but it was vinegar. So if you're trying to have an authentic Ruth and Boaz meal, you'll be dipping your, dipping your bread in vinegar. And then Ruth gets up, right? She's a hard worker. All right, I've ate as much as I can. Put the leftovers away. The leftovers. This was, this is a subsistence culture, right? This is not like, hey, Ruth, I think we got an extra cheeseburger in the sack. I mean, if you want it, you know, like, they didn't have a lot of food. They weren't, they weren't finicky like we are. She had leftovers from lunch. She's not even an employee. So she gets up, goes back to work, and Boaz says, he calls a huddle. Bring it in, right? And he says, make sure that you're not saying no to her. Let her glean wherever she wants to glean. Remember those piles that the, wheat was, that the barley was going in? If, even if she's going over in, in there, don't don't rebuke her. In fact, when you're cutting, pull some out. Throw some, throw some on the ground. Make sure she gets enough. 
right? So he, does, he waits for her to go, and then he says this to his, to his reaper. So he's, he's secretly making sure that she is going to be very well provided for. And this, this is Boaz fulfilling the blessing of Yahweh that he pronounced on her. Which should make us think of James 2, 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Boaz doesn't just say, may somebody... May, may Yahweh bring somebody along to bless you for this. Now I will do the bare minimum that the law requires of me. He goes out and he fulfills the very blessing that he proclaimed and demonstrating that he understands the means by which God works and he understands who God is and he demonstrates his faith in God he demonstrates his trust that God will provide for him, and he's acknowledging that he is merely a steward of God and that all the things that he has are God's. All of this is, is wrapped up in the way Boaz treats Ruth. So touch, I'm going to touch a little bit on, this should make us think of charity. So we're going to sidebar charity for a little bit here. Because I want to contrast man-centered charity with the charity, godly charity, God-centered charity that you see in Scripture. Because we, we have a lot of calls to charity today. The most common one that you'll see in a major metropolitan area is the guy with the sign, right? Please give me money. And often people say, why aren't those people working? I say, they are working. They're providing a service. Service they're providing for people is feel good about yourself. Feel better than me, right? Be justified for whatever change you had in your cup holder. Man, man's, man's charity is a parody of the charity that God commands because it is all about reinforcing the distinction between us and somebody else. It's about making ourselves feel better. It's reinforcing this idea that work is bad and that the whole point is the stuff. But not so with the charity that God commands. The charity that God commands is actually breaking down the distinction between people. It's giving people the opportunity to work. It's eliminating a lot of the opportunities that we have for pride. Pride is one of the, one of the major things that man-centered charity is operating on. Contrast this, our Lord says... But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then again, in Luke 14, he says, he also said to those who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, 
Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This disposition of the heart is one of the things, one of the elements. You see this breaking down our pride and giving people the opportunity to work because work is a blessing. In 2 Thessalonians, the end of 2 Thessalonians, they had a problem where there were a bunch of rich people in the church and they had a bunch of loafers. And Paul writes to expressly rebuke them because there were people who were idle. They're like, why should I work, right? Like, this guy's got all the stuff. Why doesn't he just give it to me? That idleness is condemned because work is something that we were all created for. God said to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That wasn't a command just given to some people. That was given to all of mankind. And it's a blessing to be able to be God's stewards and partake in that. And so you see an example of this in the type of charity that God commanded. It's interesting, the first time, so we're going to talk about gleaning now. The first time that you see gleaning, it's in Leviticus 19. And Leviticus 19 opens with the command, Be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. And then it talks about orientation towards authorities. So parents, Sabbaths, not making idols. And then it goes into, and then it talks about peace offerings. And then it goes into a list of commands. Right. Do not steal, do not defraud the poor, do not do injustice in court, don't lie, bear false witness. This long table of commands of how you are to be holy in relationship to man. The first one, what's the first one? The first one of that whole table, beginning in verse 9 of Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvests of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. So this charity, it's interesting. We think of it as this optional thing. Charity is mandatory for the follower of God because it puts us in right orientation before him. It's interesting that it was, it's called out here right in the context of holiness because of the way it orients our hearts in relationship to God and to others. Gleaning, interestingly, is not a word in Hebrew. There isn't a, there isn't a Hebrew word for gleaning. It's just gathering. Gleaning is gathering. It's picking up what's, what's there. They didn't have a special word for like, well, that's charity picking up. 
And it's the same word that is used of the manna. So you guys came out of Egypt and didn't have, right? Didn't have any food. And I put stuff on the ground for you to pick up, right? Now, when you harvest your fields, you leave stuff on the ground for other people to pick up. Properly understanding that we are all gleaners before God is providing gleaning for other people. So it's interesting. I've, you, know, you hear some people that take this attitude of, you, know, you should keep charity and business completely separate. And I would, I would point to gleaning to, to challenge that. There is, an, there is a place where you can over-optimize your life. And in the church, we've done a pretty good job of this in the modern world of optimizing our economic interests and then giving handouts. And that is not the biblical pattern. God didn't command Boaz to give Ruth a bunch of barley. He commanded him to give her an opportunity to work. So something for us to think about is how we can assume this same attitude. Because the stuff is temporary. The people are forever. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, you'll be rewarded at the resurrection. That's when the temporary stuff and the permanent stuff will be separated. That's when you'll see the distinction. So, you know, some, th- some things to think about is, you know, are, are there places where you could hire something out, but you could let your kids do it? You know, it's a great practical example. Are there things that you could do yourself, but you know somebody who could benefit from, from doing that work, and you hire it out to them. This, this, these are things for us to ponder, how we can live this godly charity in our own lives with the things that we've been given. It's important to contrast, or not to contrast, but to look at how both Boaz and Ruth represent godly charity on both sides. Boaz is such a representation of godly giving. He's got generosity. He sees himself rightly before God. And he doesn't have this attitude of, well, you know, they deserve it, which they did, right? Like Naomi had run away and lived with God's enemies. But that's not, that's not Boaz's attitude at all. He has the right orientation. And Ruth doesn't stand on her right. She doesn't come up. You know, you imagine today, right? Lazy, slothful, entitled, poor people. Like, you know how much cross-sectionality I have? Foreigner, widow, poor, right? Like, you should be grateful to give me a handout. Like, think about how good that's going to look in the PR. She doesn't expect anything. She's willing to work hard. You don't see greed, sloth, entitlement, just gratitude. Both of them are pictures for us to emulate. And now we'll get to the verse 17, right? The results of how this 
how this turned out. An ephah of barley is what she gets. She, so she does this, talking about how, to, how they you'd harvest. She does that in small scale. And when she's done, she has an ephah of barley. Now, you can do the math. There's some debates about how much an ephah was and doing all of the, the, the weights and the measures conversions from ancient times. The minimum it could have been was about 30 pounds of barley from picking it up off the ground. It could have been twice that, depending on how, you know, how the conversions go. So I brought a prop here. <coughs> if you want to come up and see what 30 pounds of grain is, she picked that up off the ground, right? That's a lot of generosity. That's enough to feed you for a month, especially back then, because people weren't, you know, they weren't as big. People were, small, were physically smaller at that time, right? And so Ruth beats it out, and then it's, it's, she hoists it up, <coughs> and she goes back into town with it. Incredible generosity. And also, again, getting back to Ruth being strong, I mean, I was a little winded carrying this in from the car. Anybody wants to volunteer to walk home with it? Be my guest. <laughs> and leftovers. Big sack of grain and leftovers. And this is a turning point for Naomi because Naomi sees this and she knows something's up. It doesn't happen. You just pick up 30 pounds of barley off of the ground. So she says, who is this guy? And Ruth has no clue. Says, uh, his name was Boaz. And that is a turning point for Naomi. Up to this point, Naomi has been doom and gloom. Woe is me. He always cursed me. And she says, may he be blessed by Yahweh, who is not forsaken the living or the dead. She sees God's hand at work here. And all that her family has done, that God still remembers his people. The whole point of this book is Naomi. And Naomi's salvation and restoration to the people of God through Ruth and Boaz. And this is a turning point for Naomi. And it's interesting to reflect on how it's easy for us to to think about how we often talk, you know, how trials are a way that God uses us uses to bring us to repentance. And certainly he did in Naomi's life. But sometimes God uses blessing. God is not. It's easy for us to like God is just the god of of stick. God is also the god of carrot. And sometimes he brings us to repentance and he reminds us of his goodness with an outpouring of favor that we did not expect. Ponder that in your own lives and and think of the times that there was some glorious thing, that some glorious happenstance that you did not predict. That is one of the means that God is using to remind you of what he's done for you, 
and of his providence, his providential care for his people. And this is, this is a beautiful moment. And Naomi, of course, affirms that Ruth should continue to work for Boaz, right? Which is really just a reminder of where we are in the narrative. You see God working. Because remember when we left off, they were back in the land, but they didn't have food. They didn't have safety. They didn't have a man. They didn't have an heir. Right? Those are the four things that they needed. They'd lost all of them, and they needed all of them, and they were coming back with nothing. Well, here we are. We're a chapter down, and they have food, and they have safety. Ruth has a safe place to work with a good man. She doesn't have a man yet. She doesn't have an heir. But, as I always end every bedtime story with my children, we will have to find out about that next time. All right. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, you are great and awesome and the author of all things. And we know that we can give you nothing, but we pray that we would be rightly oriented towards you as the giver of all good things. And we pray that we would represent you well in both the way that we give and the way that we receive. We pray that you would give us generous and grateful hearts, that you would help us to be diligent workers, that you would cause us always to be seeking favor in your sight and to be like your son who did not consider equality with you a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And we pray that the entire focus of our lives would be being conformed to his image and in bringing others to him and in discipling the nations so that all men would be like him. We pray that you would do this by your Holy Spirit, for your name's sake. We ask this in his name. Amen.